You're listening to the Rabbit Room Podcast. Visit us at rabbitroom.com for more information. Hello, I'm Jonathan Rogers. Welcome to the Rabbit Room Podcast. We're in the middle of an election year in America, one of the most fascinating and divisive election years in the history of this country. We normally keep things pretty apolitical at the Rabbit Room, but we're making an exception in this podcast episode. Specifically, we're talking about civility and public discourse, why it seems to have collapsed in present-day politics, and how we might restore civility in our own conversations. This episode has two parts. In part one, Thomas McKenzie tells Pete Peterson and me about a series of events in which he was subjected to some highly uncivil discourse. In part two, our friend and political operative A.E. Graham discusses how she has managed to maintain a civil tone in the rough-and-tumble world of party politics. I should mention that we recorded these conversations in early March, when it was first becoming apparent that Donald Trump's candidacy might not be just reality television, but reality. Thomas McKenzie, I don't know how relevant this will be by the time this this um, podcast airs, broadcast. What, what, I don't know what the language is, but it's published. It's cast. It's cast. cast into the waters. Um, but I felt like, since I've got you from the microphone, we have to talk about your last week or two. Yeah. Um, in the run-up to Super Tuesday, you wrote an article, uh, an, an essay that went viral. Yeah. About why, what was the title of it? Why I called it, This Isn't Funny Anymore, colon, Why I'm Voting Against Donald Trump. Okay. And this came out about a week before Super Tuesday. About before we, we yeah, voted Thursday here in Tennessee. before Super Tuesday. Yeah. I feel like okay. we should also preface this by saying that it was his personal blog. Yes. Not, he wasn't talking in his capacity as a member of the clergy. Right. And yeah. you normally, about 200 people might read something you put on that blog? Yeah, a couple hundred people maybe. Three, and you know, if it's Anglican specific, the, little, the very small niche market, which is Anglicans in America, will read it. So you're talking about, you know... In the hundreds yeah. of people. Uh-huh. And how many times, to your knowledge, has this article been read now, less than two weeks later? Through my blog alone, 1.2 million. <laughs> wow. And page views of that page. Right. And then, Not counting the... Not counting, it was, it, it was made into a news article on some other sites where uh-huh. they basically copied and pasted onto their own feed. Some celebrity, minor celebrity, put it on his Facebook page. It's on Reddit. So I have no idea how many yeah. times. But uh, 1.2 million that you know of on, I know your, for sure. on your blog. Yes, that And <laughs> this was, I, I read this, it was pretty measured. It was, it was uh, thought so. not especially inflammatory. No. Um, maybe I shouldn't say it wasn't inflammatory because it did inflame people. That's a good point. So it was inflammatory. It was inflammatory in the sense that it inflames. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about some of the comments you got. You know, it was funny because it wasn't my intention. It was my intention just to say, and I struggled with saying anything. I don't ever say anything about politics publicly because there's there's almost no reason to do it. Um, And what doesn't matter. But this guy, I just, it's like, I've got to say something. Mainly because... I started to feel this is going to be inflammatory. I started to feel like I'm beginning to understand what it must have been like to live in Germany in 1929, where there's a guy who no one takes that seriously, who says really crazy things, but people are like, ah, he's just saying it. 
to yeah. get elected. He, no, he's never going to do anything. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump is is a Nazi or that he's going to put people in concentration camps, though he does claim he wants to round up and deport 12 million people um, and keep Muslims out of the country. And those are somewhat similar, but not the same as rounding up people and putting in concentration camps. But I, I, I begin to feel that sympathy and I see pictures online. I have some pictures of ministers giving the Sigheil, you know, to Hitler and thinking, were they just thinking, ah, this is the guy. It doesn't matter. It's okay. But that, but anyway, this is the level of fascism was really disturbing to me. And so I felt like, okay, I'm going to say something, but like measured and not, you know, compared yeah, I mean, to Hitler. You are being much more inflammatory right this minute than I you am. were in the I am being more article. inflammatory in the, in the article. Way more inflammatory in the article. Because all I talked about in the article was just his character. Uh-huh. Um, which includes his racism, you know, and his misogyny and everything else. Um, but I, but the article is very measured. And it was not about... I didn't use the word fascist, for instance. Um, and I'm not saying that he is a fascist. I'm just saying he reminds me of a fascist. So, well, right. I don't think he's ideologically he's consistent enough to be a right. fascist. It, ideologically, he's not anything. He's just an opportunist ideologically, as far as I can tell. But one could argue so are fascists. So anyway, so I wrote the article, put it just put on my blog that no one reads, really. And I know tweet, I don't. Yeah, I know. Why would you? And then tweeted it, and that tw- tweet goes to you know Facebook, and then just went about my business. And people started sharing it, and I started. I don't have on my blog. I have comments disabled. Yeah, I noticed that. Well, I hate because I hate the comments. Yeah, and the only comments I normally get are spam or you know stupid you know, troll stuff. So I have it disabled in figure. If you want to talk to me, here's my email address and you can, you can email me. And so, so I started getting emails from people. I don't know. Same day, same day, pretty soon within a couple hours, just basically saying, Hey, thanks for this. This is, this was really helpful. I'm like, Oh, thank you. And I'd respond. Oh, thanks very much. And then I got one from somebody that was kind of angry and I wrote back and I was like, hey, you seem kind of angry. Um, can you explain that more? Because I don't really understand. I had one guy that first day, the email was just um, something like, you're an idiot. Go yourself. And I went, whoa. So I wrote him back and I was like, well, I don't understand why you think I'm an idiot. Can you explain that to me? I, I <laughs> I followed his email address was like his corporate email address, you know, so he has a little company and I was like, Hey, I see that you're own this little company and that's, gr- that's great. Like marketing technique. Yeah, it really is <laughs> well, on said, your letterhead. Send out angry emails right, to people. with an expletive in it. And I said, you know, I, I see that you're, you're the founder of this little company and I, I'm sure you're an intelligent person. So I don't really understand why you say that to me. And you go back and said, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just really angry. I said, I get, I get that you're angry. It makes sense. And I totally, I forgive you. It's cool. You know, and that was sort of the way it went for the first few hours. (laughs) And then it started to get more and more weird, like more and more weird. It was weird on Twitter. I've had weird, I've had nasty Twitter comments like I'm the disciple Satan and, you know, a guy who commented about the ramming of right. you know, bottoms and this sort of thing. But 
the the emails are out unbelievable. So the emails Un- are worse than the oh, tweeters. Unbelievable because the tweets can only be 140 characters of hatred. <laughs> but an email can be as long as you want. <laughs> and so I was just getting all of this stuff and it was at first it was like three quarters thanks and one quarter you know, go to hell. And then it was half and half. And now it's pretty much all go to hell. Really? You know, it's yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and most of them, you're a hypocrite. How dare you judge him? Um, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of anti-religious stuff, like your religion is my religion is offensive to them. I'm a hypocrite. I'm bad. Um, very few people said, Oh, I disagree. Donald Trump is not a racist and here's why. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. Or Donald Trump did not make fun of a disabled man and here's here's how I know that. Um, or anything like that. There was very, very little of that. It's almost all you're a hypocrite or usually something worse. Yeah. And here's why. Or um, you are a socialist or a communist or a liberal and you... You want to sort for Hillary. One guy actually wrote me saying, I know that you work for the Hillary campaign and she's paying you to do this. I was like, wow, I should invoice her for sure because yeah. I wouldn't mind getting some of her, her contribution money. So it's been, it's been nuts. And we're talking, and I'm, I've gotten a few hundred of these emails. Um, now, yeah. thankfully, I have them to an email address I don't really use very much and I kind of send them all over there. So I don't look at them all the time. They were blowing up my phone. And so I've created an auto response. So everyone who writes that email address now gets an auto response that says, Hey, if you're writing about this, which almost all of you are, uh-huh. including the spammers, including the spammers, spammers are getting this. Too. Yeah. My spammers are now getting you get this very thoughtful, a very thoughtful email. response to, you know, my the <laughs> Viagra commercials or whatever. Yeah. And the Ni- many Nigerian princes mm-hmm. have, have had a very thoughtful, email yeah, very, responsible. very, yeah. very thoughtful. <laughs> so, what have you learned from this or, or, or what, what insights do you have to provide for the rest of us who haven't had this experience? Um, don't write on blogs. Um, <laughs> okay. Don't talk about Donald Trump um, unless you want to get hate mail. I don't, you know, at first it, it, taken as individual things, they're kind of, they're funny. Right. You know, like when someone says you're a disciple of Satan, Okay, right. you don't know me. That's funny. Yeah, you know, um, a, some pe- a couple people. I've wondered if they have some kind of disability, uh-huh. you know, mental disability, and so I've been trying to be nice to them, right? Because they are the way they write is just that odd. Yeah. But the people who seem to not be mentally disabled, who really do seem to just be really angry, like I say, at first it's it's funny for a while. But the amount of it began really got began to like really burden me, and I have a I have a friend who's famous for something else, and he wrote me an email that said, "Hey, just want you to know, like I get these things too because of his some of the the way he inter- interacts with the universe." So he gets a lot of hate mail from people um, on one political part of the spectrum, and he said, "You know, it just." what you're doing is the best you can do, which is try to laugh it off. He goes, but it does begin to wear you down yeah. and it does. It's so you use the verb burdened or uh, verb. Or, burden is, it's, 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 it's a, a participle, but it's yeah. a, it's a burden. It's uh 
It's like what kind of burden, though? I mean, what, what do you mean when you say it's a, it's a it's burdensome? Like, do you start to believe that maybe some of it's no, true? No, no, I don't or? believe that I'm a that I'm a hypocrite or I'm bad for writing a, what I did. More like just to have. I don't. There are people who, in their heads, they have an inner critic yeah. who's always telling them like you suck. I don't honestly have an inner critic. Like that's not me. You know, we've noticed yeah. that. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, I'm surprised you say it out loud. Right. But. So <laughs> I don't have that in my head. And so to have, you know, a few hundred people at least in the outside of me kind of pointing fingers at me and, and yelling at, you know, epithets over the past week yeah. has been like burdensome. It's been like, wow, that's very painful. Like that hurts. I guess that's what I was asking. By burdens, you mean it's painful and hurtful? Is it you mourn for our country because there are hundreds of people who act this way? No, I don't. I, I mean, I, I fully am aware of human sinfulness. Like, I'm aware of my own human sinfulness. I'm aware of theirs. I, I don't. This does not make, make me think that humans are worse than I thought they were before. Okay. It just makes me feel like, oh, look, human sinfulness. People get angry. They vent. I don't believe that most of these people would say these things to me if we were in the same room together. But. Behind your screen when you've had a couple of drinks, you know, sure, of course you're going to send an inflammatory email to someone you don't know who's not going to respond to you. Of okay. course. Of course. Of course you're going to troll. That's what you do. That's okay. You know, um, I've been mean to people on the internet too. You Have know. you tell us about that? Oh, I've, I, when the internet was younger, I used to think, oh, this is fun. I can say, yeah, right. you know, saying snarky to this guy. I'm, I'm making, I'm typing with my fingers. Yeah, right. Like I can say something snarky to this guy and he doesn't even know who I am or anything else. Ha ha ha. And then after a while, I didn't do that very much, but I did some of that. And then I thought to myself, this is, this is not cool. Yeah. Like this is not appropriate. I shouldn't be this kind of person. And that's when I started like using my always, before it was cool on the internet, I started using my own name on everything and, you know, you know, when I got Twitter, I it's my name. You know, it's not yeah. something. I, I blog with my own name. I mean, because I felt like I needed to be able to be integrated and take personal responsibility for yeah, myself in the real world. Okay, and can I make an observation that maybe is a little bit of a sidetrack? Just Please. read um, for the first time, Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Love you read it. this? Of course. You read it? Uh-huh. And, uh... This was not my insight. It was my wife's, who is way smarter than I am. But she pointed out the uh, the parallel between that guy's kind of addiction, duality kind of thing, and the way the internet works on us. Because the internet enables us to kind of generate our own hide personality, which in the story, like Dr. Jekyll created this ability to separate the evil parts out of himself and then that evil part of himself could go do whatever it wanted and he could enjoy it uh, while not having to worry that it had any impact on his actual life and his good character which is what trolls do on the internet that's what we do (laughs) I mean I don't want to just say it's other people like we've all done it to some extent but the danger is that in the context of Jekyll and Hyde like the troll slowly began to take over until the good person could no longer exist Yes. You know, and that's what bothers me about this kind of internet culture here yes. where people think, oh, I can just do this stuff that uh, doesn't have any repercussions on my real life. Right. But eventually that thing could can overtake the good person that's behind it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Of course yeah. it does. It's like it's the 
it's like Saruman, right? You know, like which I'm, almost makes me think. I mean, maybe on the internet, you know, maybe your name should have to be bound to everything you do because people have suggested those kind of things. I'm not. I'm just saying that I can see where that kind of argument comes from. I, I wish that your na- that people's names were bound to everything they do. But weirdly enough, I don't think that would stop some people. Yeah, true. I think some people don't care about their name enough to. Hold back. Well, yeah, I mean, you're getting real. These people putting their real names on these emails. You're getting right. I don't. I don't. I don't. Well, think it's I don't have public public either. That. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that that you do this. How, how do you do this? Well, I think I'm. You know, kind of like. Uh, well, like Thomas when I was younger and the internet was newer. You didn't fully comprehend uh, the effects of the way you acted on the internet, so it was a lot easier to get in arguments on message boards yep. and maybe be nastier than you would be in real life. And I've since learned that that is a bad direction to go. But like, I'm still tempted by it sometimes, you know? Like, somebody will say something that I just think is completely ridiculous, and here I have the ability to punch back anonymously, yes. and like... I want to do it, you know, and every now and then I, I do. And I almost always regret it, especially if I tell my wife that I did it. But <laughs> <laughs> we have come to part two of our show. A.E. Graham has been involved in Republican Party politics for most of her adult life. For six years, she was a speechwriter for a U.S. congresswoman. She led a team of writers for George W. Bush in his second term as president. If you received a birthday greeting from George W., or if you read the presidential proclamations declaring Leif Erikson Day, General Pulaski Day, Math Day, or Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, you're already familiar with A.E.'s work. She has also written speeches for the Republican National Convention. In short, she is a highly accomplished woman. But here's what impresses me most about A.E. Graham. She is a person of strong political convictions, she is very much a committed partisan, and yet she is level-headed, fair-minded, and one of the most civil people you'll ever meet, no matter how hot the topic she's discussing. I've never known her to go for the oversimplification, emotional manipulation, or ad hominem attacks that come so easily to political polemicists on all sides. Whether you agree with her politics or disagree, I think you'll find that A.E. Graham is a model for civil discourse. She sat down with Pete Peterson and me for a very civil conversation that I think you'll enjoy and benefit from. Also, late in the conversation, you'll hear Randall Goodgame, who sat down in medias res, as the Romans used to say. A.E. Graham, welcome to the Rabbit Room Podcast. Thank you. Uh, We invited A.E. Ashley Elizabeth Graham to join us. We have Pete Peterson here as well to talk about civility and public discourse. You strike me as a person who believes in the process. Very much. How you still believe in the process is spectacular. I mean, it's, it's, it Strange. start there. Yeah. How, how are you still, how do you still trust the process after having your sort of many years of touring the sausage factory? Okay. So have you ever seen King Ralph? No. Oh, you ever seen King Ralph? No. I am terribly disappointed. Um, it's this John Goodman, Peter O'Toole movie, I think from the 80s or 90s. Nothing? Okay. The whole premise is this terribly plausible idea that the entire royal family is having their picture made at once, and they all get wiped out <laughs> by electric shock. <laughs> and to save the monarchy, they have to find a guy who right. can become king. And it's John um, Goodman. It's John Goodman, right. who is a lounge singer in Vegas. Um <laughs> 
he comes to London. They teach him how to be king. Okay. And there's this moment where he says to his secretary, where he also makes this joke about if you've been secretary 20 years, then you must be really good at typing, which is all kinds of hilarious. But he says, how do you, be- how do you become king? I mean, what, what is it about this? And Peter O'Toole answers, and of course I'm paraphrasing, that it's the work of the gods that must be born by man. And that's always stuck with me as the process, that it is the work of the gods and that we're, this process is, is more or less deciding where the levers move uh-huh. and we'll never do it perfectly. Um, as a Christian, I believe the only time that that's done perfectly is on the cross. And so because of that, it is, it is a work that must be borne by man. So it will be imperfect. And if you kind of allow for those imperfections, um, the process starts to become a little more manageable more or less. Huh. Um, but it's ugly. Uh, yeah. it is more, it is getting more and more ugly. Um, it, the root of, of the word civics, it takes us back to this Latin idea and even this Greek idea that it's conversation related to the body. Um, we've taken that to mean in our aristocratic brothers and sisters took it to mean in the 15th and 16th centuries that it was kind and it was, um, virtuous conversation and it was, um, conversation of the court. It was of high flutin' people. Uh-huh. That was civility. When in reality, civility is just the conversation of the body. Um, so I think we've abandoned this notion that we can talk about politics if that we can't talk about them if it's unkind, uh-huh. um, which is a complete abandonment of what the word actually means. So, which is why I talk so much about the process, because it is the work of the body. If I could see more of the inner workings of the political process, would I be more encouraged or less encouraged? Um, uh, So, if you're watching a House of Cards version, uh, much less encouraged. Um, I'm sorry, what? If I were watching a House of Cards version of the real process. Right. I mean, this kind of intrigue, power, struggle... um, dalliances, affairs, money bought kind of process, if, if that's how you view it, you will be much more discouraged. Um, for more or less, that's the process is really bland. Um, you know, the thing that money drives politics is to some extent a little true, but even recently, you can ask Eric Cantor and the, the Virginia 7th, um, all the money in the world and the people in his district chose not to reelect him. Um, so at the end of the day, it comes down to the conversation you're having with your constituents, and that's really how you move the lever. Uh, it's not as sexy as money and intrigue and drugs and scandal, but um, it's a pretty boring process. Do you think um, uh, uh, House of Cards is doing damage to I to do. I really yeah. do. And I love the West Wing, but I think that show also did some damage. So now we're seeing this generation of politicos who went into it because they watched the West Wing and they have this romantic notion. Um, and asking people to raise their hand is a very romantic notion, but it's drudgery. Uh-huh. Um, and I think this drive to make it sexy is really bad. Government doesn't look good in a bikini, and so it shouldn't be a, <laughs> a, a sexy effort. Yeah. So I've got a question. Like, I feel like more than any other time in my lifetime, uh, the public discussion of the of politics is so polarized that there is no more room in the middle for like I'm in the middle, but I don't feel like anybody's listening to me, and I don't feel like there's anybody speaking for me. In in politics, and uh, I I can't I don't understand I can't even see the way out of that to bring in the two sides back to the middle so that there is understanding and 
politeness and, you know, acceptance of, oh, yeah, we disagree, but right. it's not the end of the world. Right. Like, do you see a path forward where we where our country could potentially reclaim that? Not just in the political arena, but even in just like public discussion, because yeah. I feel like there are like I could go to a house party. And because I know what another person thinks of something, I'm not going anywhere near right. that. And, and it's permeated more than just our politics. So we don't talk about books we've read because somebody says that has a political bent or TV shows. or I mean, it's just, it's married really? to much of our so? lives. I, I do. I think we kind of, every conversation tends to end up at something political, which well, is it's unfortunate. Well, it's like you can't even, like, if, if you ask somebody where they go for their news. Right. Right off the bat, you've you're making a whole well, bunch yeah. of judgments. Yeah. You know, do you ask that question? People ask me. Really? I've been asked sometimes, and I and the answer I've given is provoked ire. Yeah. Where do you get your news? From a variety of sources. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Ditto. I oh, mean, sure. I, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I like to confuse most of my party because I watch MSNBC in the morning, and um, I tend to be on CNN or CNBC throughout the day, and um, I'm rarely ever on the network that I think most of my party is affiliated with. Um, my grandfather grew up in Puerto Rico and then and moved to Tampa as a child and didn't have a lot of money. And um, My dad used to tell me stories of dad asking granddad, if you only had a dime, what paper did you buy in Tampa? Because there's all this media. And he said, well, when you have a dime, you'll, you buy the opposition. And so this yeah. idea that you already know what you believe, so kind yeah. of box out of that. And that's what scares me, is I feel like these days people only want to hear people who agree with them. Yeah. And like, so some people ask me sometimes, or they'll see me on the, on the computer, and I'm looking at Fox News, and they make this snap judgment. And I'm like, well, hold on now. Like, I read a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. and sometimes it's Fox News, sometimes it's CNN, sometimes it's Al Jazeera. And the reason is because, like, I want to know what everybody on every side of the situation yeah. is saying, because if I don't know where they're coming from, I don't know how to judge what they're saying. Exactly. And so one of the things I think is the most dangerous about where we are right now is that news isn't coming from news anymore. Um, and I don't mean the networks, because I think Al Jazeera was this fantastic network, and I'm sorry mm-hmm. to kind of see it go away. Um, but most people now are getting their news in their inbox or on their Facebook feeds from groups who are making money off your outrage. Um, I certainly won't question the wisdom of the court nor of the United States Senate, but I think one of the more dangerous things we did was allow outside groups to almost become political parties. They're not bound by any of the rules of our current political parties. They're not bound to disclose their donors. What sort of outside groups? Um, You're seeing every kind of organization have a political arm that can do advocacy on its behalf. So both conservative and liberal think tanks now have these arms that act both as a political party and that they recruit members, they recruit people to run for office, they have platforms, um, they have conventions, but they're also news sources. So they're sending you news that is absolutely based on the fact that you will remain committed to their cause. Um, which is a really scary place to be because it's how we end up with these great polarizations because they lose support and money if they tell you that the system is working well. Yeah. Um, and also you'll believe anything. The, the more separated you get from people who disagree with you, you believe anything about them. Correct. Uh, one of the conversations I'm having now is, you know, how did, how did both sides kind of get where they are right now? It's March. Um, things could certainly change, but right now it, it, it's an interesting place where both of our parties are. And I want to be, uh, I want to kind of step back from it and be a little bit frustrated by it. But if I am in a situation where a lot of our voters are on both sides of the aisle and they're only getting their news from these groups and not, not even networks anymore, 
then that's the only information I have. Of course, I'm making the choice that these, that the parties are making now. Mm-hmm. Um, there, because there's no one to step in and say, Hey, wait a minute. Um, that might not be true. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. The, the slant of the, the networks, Fox News and MSNBC is nothing compared to the slant Correct. of and at least where we're know, really getting exactly, our news from. Exactly. One of the things that I'm consistently frustrated about, and I have absolutely no power to change, um, is Facebook has this insane 20% rule. So any graphic that's posted that gets shared because of Facebook's algorithm and has to be boosted to be shared has to have less than 20% text. So you're getting these ideas that leave out the middle and you're getting a beginning of a wow. something and an end of a something. Cause that's all they can fit on 20% of the text. Very down to very simple. five boxes on a screen. Right. And it is dangerous because we're now seeing people vote on these ideas uh, that are 20% of the whole picture. I'm amazed how often I'll, I'll sit say to somebody, hey, do you see that such and such happened? You know, I saw on Facebook that such and such happened. And I'll say, oh, tell me more about it. Like, yeah, I didn't really read it. I just saw the headline. Right. Yeah. It happens almost every day. Right. Right. And I, I run into it uh, from a communications perspective because I work in education policy and there are these grand education notions that you really want to talk about. Uh, but for Facebook to boost it and your people to see it, it's got to have 20% and it's hard. Man. So what, what, like, what's the solution? Like, I, mean, I don't expect you to have the solution. But well, they have a We invited you for solutions. <laughs> like, how do you turn the Call show? Mike Z- Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I think we're getting there. I, I think you really are seeing this kind of pendulum swing back from we, I love social media. I was an early adopter of it. I've championed it. I love the way that it quite actually has changed the face of the world. But we're going to have to encumber ourselves with the belief that it can't be all we know. Um, We're going to have to say, okay, this is what's been given to me. Is there more information I don't have? Go to the source. I spend a lot of time pushing people to congressmen and senator and governor's websites. Um, They put out their own press releases. Yes, they're slanted to their agendas, but you will then know their agenda. Um, Don't read what, you know, a, a... an advocacy group has posted on Facebook because it is rarely ever without continuing to make money off you being angry. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've seen in this election on both sides is people, I'm just angry. I'm angry and, and I just want to be angry. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of liken it too. It's the same thing as rioting. I mean, you're angry, but you're burning down your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But if, and I've kind of taken this project to drill down to people, why are you angry? And nine times out of 10, they're angry about something that just isn't true. But they've held this belief for so long that no amount of my saying, well, actually, Congress doesn't have free health care, will change that they're angry because nobody has challenged that belief for four years. So it's the truth. Mm. So it bothers me that, and this is a little bit of a change of direction, uh, I feel like what, like, Part of what governs the way that I interact with people on the public and political level is like I'm called as a Christian to love my enemy as well as my neighbor. And uh, that, does, that doesn't say agree with your enemy. It doesn't say agree with your neighbor. It says love them, right? Which whatever else that means, it definitely means don't yell at them and call them names. And so it's deeply disturbing to me that to see that in a lot of time, a lot of the time, some of the most angry, volatile, like vicious voices out there are those that claim to be Christians. And like, it embarrasses me as a Christian, you know, and I don't want that person to be the voice of Christ in the world. Not that person. I mean, these kinds of people who are clearly not 
be in the voice of Christ. But right. to those outside of the church, that's what it seems like. Right. Although, can I just challenge one tidbit there? The, yeah. the, the, the language of enemy. I mean, who, who's your enemy? Right. I mean, politically speaking, I mean, is, is, a, is a person right. who's voting for a different candidate really your enemy? Right. And I agree. I thought about that before I said it. And my answer would be that and we're called to love everybody. Yeah. So maybe that's the better way to say right. it right here. Um, love the opposition. Right. Right. Love Even the those other. who oppose our point of view. Yeah. I, so an interesting story to that and, and a very profound movement in 2006. At the time, Senator Brownback, um, my party has, Killer Clinton's kind of been in the, um, the position of the enemy for a long time uh-huh. to Republicans. And he was very public about a reconciliation with his faith that I can't hate her. Um, and made a very private apology to her on behalf of his faith and what he believed. And a public apology was much shortened um, that Christians should be called to love and that he had not done a good job of that, which I think is commendable. And I'm reminded right now we're in a and he season. He probably of, got hate mail from did. Christians a about A lot that. of it. Yeah. A lot of it. Um, and I suspect that's still one of the reasons his, his polling numbers, even in his home state, are lower than they probably should be. But we're in the season of Lent, and so we're walking very closely to Palm Sunday. We're walking very closely to the story of um, Barabbas being released instead of Christ. And I'm reminded, and, and I don't say this to marry the faith and, and the work of government. They're not the same. Voting isn't a sacrament. But the idea that the voice of the mob is rarely ever the right thing. Um, and so while people are angry and they are furious and sometimes justifiably so, the voice of the mob is dangerous. Yeah. Great insight. Um, we're talking, we've been talking about anger. Seems like a couple of years ago we were talking about fear. Sure. Um, it's easy. It's it's really really easy um, to manipulate you. I have a hard time as a speechwriter. Not a hard time. I have a consistent time as a speechwriter making sure that what I'm writing isn't emotionally manipulative because yeah. it's really easy to manipulate the masses. It's really easy. Um, loft sounds pretty and people want to like it. And so the higher you can take a speech, the more people react to it. And then all of a sudden there's so, a following uh, of it. I'm curious about well, I'm that. sorry. Like, I'm just like, suddenly there's a what? There's a following of it. I mean, just because it sounds pretty, people will gravitate to it. Right. So I, I respect the fact that you consciously try not to be manipulative through emotional language or whatever, but isn't there also a place for that? Because like I read Martin Luther King stuff and it's incredibly, I mean, you can say manipulative because it's moving me, right? Right. And and it's high lofty language and all that stuff. And that's part of what makes him so great. Sure. So, you know, why would you stray away from that if you thought you could use it to your advantage? So I say as a Republican that one of my favorite speeches in the world is President Kennedy's speech at Rice University, that we choose to go to the moon. Um, I don't think we would have gone to the moon without that speech. I think the good is motivation. The deviation of the good is manipulation. So it's a good thing to motivate people to a cause as long as the cause is a tangible thing. I think you start to manipulate when you say, when you motivate people to fear because it's not something you can touch. It's an action to incite something. Um, When we chose to go to the moon and President Kennedy said we were going to do it in this decade, the backside of that is support your elected officials as they start that work because we're going to spend a lot of your money to do it. But if we can inspire you to long to the enormity of the sea, you'll be okay with building a boat. That's a tangible thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing some speeches now that just incite 
anger or fear. Mm -hmm. There's not tangibles behind them. They're these shadowy unknowns. And I think that's the deviation. Yeah, interesting. I like how you said how it's, well, how you said it um, about what manipulation is. But where I was going in my mind was, is manipulation... When I think about someone manipulating me, it's when they're saying something they don't actually believe, but they think that I believe to help to, to bring me to their That's cause. That's fair, yeah. So, like, it makes me think of, I recently read the, have you read Bonhoeffer? The, yeah. Uh, makes me think of the, yeah. the whole stretch of Hitler. And, yeah. of course, it's the, like, epitome of hyperbole to talk about the Nazis, right? <laughs> it's the Hitler paradigm, is that right? What? Yeah. But that's what he did. It's absolutely true. He was all about God bless Germany uh-huh. and like the peace of Christ. Exactly. He didn't care. He was, was so not a part no. of who he was, but he knew at first he needed to get the German Christians yeah. on his side. And so. he did. And they voted overwhelmingly for him. And it was on this notion, of course, we had seen the Great Depression here and it, it traveled across the ocean as economic disasters tend to. So there was this real thing in Germany that um, there was no money, there were no jobs, there was an influx of immigration. And so Hitler came in on this um, Germany, I can't resist not saying it because it actually was a belief of his to make Germany great again. And to do that, we were going to um, outlaw the immigrant and outlaw, uh, to reinstate some pretty strict financials um, to carry you on fear. And you're right. He didn't believe it. It was just how he got to power. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully by the time this airs, people won't even know what you're referring to. I, I really, to that's my, I wholeheartedly pray. I'm sure that if you could have summed up Hitler's catchphrase, it would have been, let's make Germany great again. And it really was. I mean, yeah. I, I, I sort of say that in, in cheek, but that really was his, his premise was Germany yeah. first, that Germany would be great. They had been decimated by the treaty mm-hmm. from World War One. Yep. It had been horrible. It was bad. But I think I think you're right, Randall. That it's um, it's a belief that you don't have, and in the history we have this grand history of civilization to show us that when leaders tend to espouse beliefs that they don't hold, it very quickly becomes violent. Hmm. Oh. Wow. Um, okay, it's your Hutchmoot talk. You talked about the idea of the Via Media. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Via Media. Thanks for asking. Why don't you talk to us about it? Um, so one, Madam Secretary, if it's a show that's still on when this airs, totally hijacked my whole thing about Via Media, because if you watch it, the Secretary of State is married to a religious professor, and Dr. McCord espouses the greatness of the Via Media, and I kind of feel like ABC stole it, but... Um, it's the idea that the Catholic Church has long hold, and it's it's not unique to just the Catholic Church. The, the Buddhist, Sorry, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. Could you just really quickly say that slowly and define that term? The so via media. Who have maybe yeah. not heard it before. Yep, it's the via media. It quite actually means the walk down the middle. Um, the Catholic Church has taught it. The Islamic faith teaches it. The Buddhist faith teaches it. More or less, the Jewish faith teaches it. The idea that when dealing with the other, um, especially in matters of of the body, that extremes of excess and extremes of restraint are both bad, and that the way of justice and of prudence is down the middle. And this was this great moment for me. Um, Cardinal Dolan has spoken a lot about it. Pope Benedict uh, spoke a lot about it. I'm totally stealing from them. Um, But they talk about, Colonel Dolan especially, you know, Christ never talked about which tax code was more just, a 4% or a 6%. So if we're voting and acting and and adjudicating and legislating on the voice of Christ, which most Christians are, what do you do? 
because the scripture doesn't tell me about Medicaid reform. It doesn't tell me about education spending. Well, the most just thing to do is to walk down the middle and, and find that place where it's neither an excess or a restraint. Um, and it's, I think it's the prudent way forward. But it doesn't get a lot of votes. And so that's... Um, and that kind of brings me back to my concern. Is like I'm afraid that because I tend to walk down the middle that I'm becoming more and more irrelevant as the polarization happens. Yeah, I think so there's like, more of us than there are not. Um, we see from time to time, uh, Russ Feingold was this great Democratic senator, very much a moderate, um, got unfortunately ousted. So, so we do see where these great moderates lose office. Um, but more or less, the electorate will have to decide that they're okay with it and give their elected officials the grace to come to the middle. My experience with elected officials on both sides of the aisle is that's where they want to be. Mm-hmm. They know that's the best thing. Uh, but the only people they hear from are the people who are on the ends. Yeah. Well, but my one concern about the Via Media, as you've described it, is that as um, seems to me it's a principle to get us in the neighborhood sure. of the right. Sure. But as things sort of shift, I mean, sometimes things, both the right and the left, shift sure. to the right or to yeah. the left. I mean, sometimes they, they go farther apart. Sometimes they, they the middle, the middle shifts the middle as does things shift. Yes. shift. So, I mean, sometimes people are looking for something a little more... Nuanced? Uh, no. Not more nuanced. A little more... Maybe a little less nuanced. I mean, sure. a, a way to say whatever the the whichever way the cultural winds are blowing, there's something that's true. Sure. I guess you're suggesting yeah. that the, whatever's true is somewhere between the the poles. So I don't think it, it affects what's what is truth. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think it affects what you hold as truth or what is held as truth. I think it's absolutely in the relationship with the other. Uh-huh. Um, right. So there are things I know politically to be true, and I believe them to be true. The process is held up, though, that you might believe something very different to be true politically. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we're talking about great moral truths, I contend that the days where we actually legislate on great moral absolutes are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And to steal an Aaron Sorkin line, they tend to come with high body bags. I mean, that's just the reality of great, great truths in in government tend to function on um, at times where there has to be. But legislation tends to not be something that is an absolute good or an absolute bad. Uh, It just is. Mm -hmm. All economics has shown us that a 4% swing either way in the tax code is okay. Uh, But anything more than 4% in raising or in lowering causes catastrophe. So some party platforms are that you don't touch it at all, which fits that 4%. Some are that you raise it 30% to fix the coffers, which affects that. You know, so there's, there's 4% on either end that is right, and it's just how we interpret where that swing is. Mm-hmm. So with regard to the other, yeah. it seems to me that the Via Media is, is a way of, of acknowledging that even though you and I disagree, this isn't a case of... I'm right all the way, and you're wrong all the right. way. Right, well, It's kind of the practical outworking of love thy neighbor, right? Right, right. Like, we're going to find a way to compromise and... Okay. If we're going to be in relationship. Right. Unless I'm just going to turn around and walk away right. and never speak to you. and there might be again. times for that. Um, right, I mean, because the, the language of the Via Media, 
it seems to me in our political climate now, I mean, people do think we're talking about major moral issues and not just matters of policy or matters of... Sure. And there are um, questions of life. There's very strong opinions on what is absolutely right. Uh, And there are very strong, for example, opinions on then how that is legislated, if it can be legislated incrementally, because then that's an acknowledgement that it might be not a good. Right. Um, So even in these absolutes, we see if we can come to the middle of that absolute, we're probably doing the next best right thing, which I think is what government should be. It should be doing the next, whatever that next best right thing is. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not elected. So I get the power and the wisdom of the backseat to say these things. But as an elected official, it completely hinges on your constituency believing that that's an okay thing. Right. Um, Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom. This has been really fun. Thanks. For more information about The Rabbit Room and The Rabbit Room Podcast, visit us at rabbitroom.com. The music on this podcast was composed and performed by Andrew Osinga from his album Solar Wind.